welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest, Ricky Diwan QC of Essex Court Chambers. Hello, Ricky. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Ricky. Ricky is a dear friend of both the firm and myself, and it gives me great pleasure to be doing this podcast with Ricky. I'm going to say a few words about him to just introduce him first of all. Ricky is a QC, as I mentioned. He's at Essex Court Chambers. He became a QC in 2015. And prior to coming to the English Bar, he was admitted in the New York Bar and uh, worked at Debevoise and Plimpton. So had a lot of experience before he came to the English Bar and has a very international practice, a very varied practice in commercial law with a huge emphasis on international arbitration investment treaty arbitration and public international law. And uh, I've had the great privilege of having Ricky in a number of cases over the years. Has always been a wonderful opponent with great grace as an opponent. And I've, I've always appreciated that. And this podcast series is part of a special series to mark and honor South Asian Heritage Month and to highlight those people of a South Asian background who've done so much in the law and who are role models and who lead the way. And Ricky is one of those people. So Ricky, as I say, it's a great privilege to be doing this podcast with you. And I'm very grateful that you've taken the time out to do it. All I can say is it's a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure I deserve that much credit, but we'll see. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it's, it's a great pleasure to be here and speak to you. Thank you, Ricky. Now, so tell us, Ricky, how did it all begin for you? So why did you choose law in the first place? So that, that is a good diversity question. Like you, I come from an Indian background. My parents were first generation to come to England. They were, obviously, they came from a, a non-wealthy background. In fact, my father always reminds me that he came to this country with one pound. So they were, the education was a great emphasis that they placed and a professional career was something that they were always very keen on. So my mother wanted me to do something like engineering and I loved languages and I was very good at them and law was a a compromise. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Well, what a great compromise it worked out to be, Ricky. So which languages do you speak? I have to, I can't resist asking you that question. At a time, I was very, very fluent in French and German. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lo- in fact, I loved French so much that I would spend more time reading French literature than English because I thought that they wow. could, in my view, they could express sentiments and feelings in a way that you don't necessarily get in the same way in the English language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I spent a lot of my youth reading French literature, a large amount of French literature, but I was also very good at German. So those were the two languages that I was interested in, but I was also would have liked, and at that time they were just starting 
out on, you know, teaching Japanese and Chinese at university all, all those years ago. And that, that was interesting to me because I, I had a natural affiliation for understanding different languages because that also is, a, is about cultural identity. Yeah, that's so true, Ricky. I mean, I identify with that totally. You know, our backgrounds are very similar. And certainly, our, you know, my upbringing was in a multilingual. So being brought up speaking English and Bengali was just, it just came naturally, just exactly how I was brought up with my sister. And that leads to a, to a real interest in languages, which I actually, funny enough, still maintain. Oh, very good. So I, I actually didn't know that about you, Ricky, that you had such proficiency and interest in languages. So I'm delighted that I could ask you that question. You know, one quick follow-up on that that I can't resist as well on languages. Do you conduct hearings in French, say, or in, in German? So I don't. And the reason being that I haven't, I mean, I can still read French very well and I can still understand it very well, but I haven't maintained it to the level where I would feel comfortable. So in some arbitrations, I'm actually appointed as arbitrator where they ask me if I've got a proficiency in French to be able mm-hmm. to read documents in French. And I'm totally comfortable with that. But to conduct an yeah. conduct it is another level of proficiency, which I don't feel that I have anymore. Mm. No, very interesting. So then having done law, which as you say was a compromise, but like I say, it was a great compromise in your case, Ricky. You went to New York and you did the New York bar. And as I said in the introduction, you worked at Deborah Boys and Plimpton, you know, one of the finest firms globally. So how did New York come to be, right, you know, rather than you begin your career here in the UK? So I did my first law degree at Cambridge and my college, Trinity, was an amazing college. And uh, they, so I applied to do a, a master's at Harvard. They gave me a scholarship to go there. And when I was at Harvard, uh, and it truly, for me, was out of one of these John Grisham books. But in those days, in the 90s, early 90s, the US New York law firms used to come onto campus to recruit. So in my case, I, I applied to some of the law firms. I was recruited by David Rifkin, who, you know... Very well. Yeah, I know David. Yep. He, well, he's very well known. Super well known. And in the IBA as well. Super brilliant. And who was, was is the leading partner in international arbitration at Devil Boys, along with now with Mark Friedman, who at that time was his associate. The first case mm-hmm. I ever did in New York... David was the partner, Mark Friedman was the senior associate, and I was the underling associate who Mark was very upset with because I didn't <laughs> know how to blue blue book site check a brief. Having, <laughs> uh, having only done one year of US law at Harvard as a master's. So basically, it was one of those things which just happened, having been exposed in the US to to US law, US practice, and to be New York being a very interesting city, and mm-hmm. these law firms having a presence on these campuses, uh, and then thinking yes, and I was doing international arbitration at, at Harvard, as one of my main courses. And so David Rifkin was at that time, very well known in the area. Mm-hmm. And the person who was teaching me Arthur von Meren, who was a founding professor in the area, his brother was one of the top partners at Devil Voice, his mm. twin brother. I mean, what a great introduction to the world of arbitration. Uh, you know, we're both academically and professionally in the US. So after you practiced in uh, New York, 
and you came back to London. And did you start off your career at Essex Court Chambers and you've been all the way through? Yes. So the only change of job other than Essex Court was uh, Devil Boys in New York. And then in terms of mentors and sponsors in your career so far, I mean, I dare say some of the people you've already mentioned have been, remain mentors and sponsors of your career. Are there other people that you'd like to mention who've been particularly influential and, and instrumental in your career so far? Well, certainly other than, I mean, David was the first person that I worked with and I learned a lot from him. And he was a very meticulous, insightful person. But at Essex Court, my mentors, I'd say there were three big mentors. There was Johnny Vida, who was a big, big mentor. And uh, I spent a great deal of time working with him in his room and learning from him. Then Joe Smuha, who at that time was one of my pupil masters when I started. As a junior, I must have done more cases with him than anyone else by a huge stretch. Maybe virtually every other case was with, with Joe for a long period of time from the beginning. So, and then Toby. Toby was, you know, he's not actually that much. I mean, the guy obviously is brilliant and he's he's probably not that much older than me, but he was so senior in status by the time I had started that I was his junior and worked with him on a lot of international arbitrations and we worked together on some big ones and I learned a great deal from him. And and that was a natural because he would probably say that Johnny was one of his key mentors. So it was inevitable. Yeah, I mean, those are all fabulous names, Ricky. I mean, I remember when I was a, a trainee many, many years ago, and this is going back 30 years ago, the name VV Vida QC, i.e. Johnny Vida, was always one of the big names, even in those days. You know, Joe, I know well too, outstanding, Joe Smuha. And Toby, well, Toby Landau is just exceptional too. So you've been incredibly fortunate, <laughs> Ricky, could I say. You've had, you know, if you think about David, Rifkin, Mark Friedman, and then you look at your three people you've mentioned at Chambers. I mean, that's, a, that's not just first class, that's world class. For sure. So how has that experience of you being mentored and influenced by these fantastic people, how has that influenced how you now mentor younger lawyers? So I think that for me, the biggest thing, the first thing is ethics, because all of them have strong ethics and they instill that in me. I'm not willing to take... Uh, First of all, I'm not willing just to take points because the client wants me to take points unless I'm satisfied that it's a proper point. Uh, and secondly, I'm not willing to mislead. You know, obviously that, that's an obligation on all of us, but, but there are black and white, there's gray areas and so on. And that's something, that's something which matters to me a great deal. I feel that Johnny was meticulous about ethics and not misleading the tribunal, the court, and just doing things around the true position and not trying to, to, to beat around the bush, so to speak. And that's something which is important to me because at the end of the day, we, we represent our clients. We want to fight for them to the maximum with maximum passion, but it's got to be on, on, on true and fair terms. So, so I would say that was one thing. The other thing, of course, is that these, these three... And all of them are, well, I mean, Johnny's an incredible thinker out of the box. 
there's always a different angle that you can can approach things from. Joe, similarly, he never gives up, never, never thinks that the situation is lost and is always willing to look for another angle in order to persuade. So uh, those two concepts have always been there and also being very precise analytically because they're, they're all very clear thinkers. So those are the sorts of things which matter to me when I'm acting as lead counsel with more junior lawyers. Yeah, and can I say I, I can identify so much because I've seen you in action. And I can remember one case, one particularly difficult case, which arose out of an arbitration which you and I were on opposite sides of, which you'll remember. I mean, we obviously can't refer to the names of the parties, but it took place outside of London, where you were being led at that time by one of your silk colleagues at Chambers. And we had a hearing that arose out of that in London. And you took the points very properly in that case. It was a very difficult case for us and on certain points. But I, I'll never forget, Ricky, how well you argued that case, because you could have taken a number of points to really rub salt in the wounds, but you didn't. And you took the points very well. And I shall never forget that. And I've not forgotten that. And the fact that I'm mentioning it to you now, is, uh, and albeit certain mass terms, is a real credit to you, Ricky, and the values that have clearly brought you up as an advocate. We've spoken a bit about arbitration and how you started out in that and how you've practiced in it. And as I said in the introduction, it's a major part of your practice. And you do a lot of international arbitration work under many, many different rules. But I wanted to ask you about your life as an arbitrator, because you sit a lot as an arbitrator. And I know that you're on the panels of a number of the major arbitral bodies. But I just wonder... What are your sort of key reflections on what the role of an arbitrator demands of you that is very distinct from what the role of counsel demands of you? Well, for a start, as an arbitrator, it's really important not to be counsel. And I think sometimes counsel or arbitrators can find that quite difficult because you're there actually to listen and to try and understand what the position is. Obviously, there's issues of clarification for your understanding, but it's a completely different role in that in that sense. And sometimes I think that's uh, that's forgotten. I don't view my role, which maybe some arbitrators do, as either being a mediator between the parties. I think some arbitrators see it because it's part of a commercial assessment that it could be some elements of mediation. I don't I don't see that as the role of an arbitrator as opposed to a mediator, and. I think the role of an arbitrator is also about, in fact, a lot about cultural sensitivity, which as counsel, sometimes you're not as culturally sensitive because of the fact that you're representing a particular side of a particular culture. And your job is not necessarily to be culturally sensitive to the other side, or or it's not necessarily in your client's interest that you should be. So... Indian culture, Chinese culture, English culture are in many ways different. And Mm -hmm. people choose international arbitration, or my view is at least, not only neutral forum and so on, but also a, a more global understanding of culture and that it's different and it affects differently the way people communicate and so forth. And having that sort of understanding and therefore being sensitive to that in the way that you deal with witnesses 
you deal with people from different backgrounds is is to me very important as an arbitrator. And I think Johnny was extremely sensitive about that. And I think he was probably one of the most popular arbitrators of all time, in large part because of that. Now, that's so true, Ricky. I, you know, the ability to be a judge but not be a judge is actually, I think, what epitomizes a very good arbitrator because you've got to modulate your behavior accordingly and be able to be sort of a person for all seasons and just mix in with common law jurisdictions, civil law jurisdictions, certain cultures, be they Asian, European, North American, whatever. It's the ability to be different people and to just make everyone feel that you're listening. No, no, I completely, and, and, and you know, you epitomize those values too, Ricky. Let me ask you this, because, I mean, one of the things that we often talk about, both as practitioners, and you and I have spoken on panels together on this issue, in the pre-pandemic days, of course, you'll remember, Ricky, the last time we sat side by side on a panel was in uh, Mumbai. Yes. In 2019 at GAR. But also, you'll be aware from your own expertise and experience, and our clients are very well aware, that arbitration, whilst very good, can also be improved in many ways. And there are certain shortcomings that you know can clearly be looked at. Are there any particular areas that you think could be particularly improved in the arbitration process to, to ensure that it's a much better form of itself? So what I think probably parties' criticism is most leveled at is the fact that there may not be enough proactive case management by arbitrators along the way because they're not sufficiently familiar with the underlying case until towards the end of the process. I think that's often a source of frustration for parties. Uh, And don't get me wrong, I'm not a big fan of the Prague rules, but one of the things which that tries to impose is much more active case management by the tribunal. In courts, normally you get a lot more proactive case management by the court along the way. In arbitration, because of its considered consensual nature, there's less proactive and it's left to the parties. I think actually parties would prefer if if tribunals got much more proactive along the way, it also would likely to streamline things, which remains very much in the party's hands, which means that where you've got super experienced law firms dealing with it, that's fine. They know what they want. They know what the client wants, and that's fine. But in other situations, it can cause the arbitration process to be more difficult than it should. So that's one thing. I mean, we often talk about, you know, the things that arbitrators are much, much less likely to allow for summary dismissal and all of that. And poor claims ought to be dismissed, and that they're concerned about due process and so on. So they are more reluctant about that. So that's something which, again, rules are trying to provide for, but it's about a cultural change in order to actually not be on the rules to push forward from that. Beyond that, I mean, the pool of arbitrators, we always talk about the pool of arbitrators not being sufficiently diverse to reflect the diversity of arbitration as a mechanism. And I think that's that's changing, but there's still a strong club of arbitrators of a particular background and milieu. So so that's something which is always on on the radar. I think 
most institutions have that on the radar and are trying to deal with it. And I I think the composition of tribunals is changing. So that that's a good thing, but there's mm-hmm. still more to be done. Well, no, I agree. And, you know, that leads very nicely into the next segment I wanted to ask you about, Ricky, which focuses on a diversity, equality and inclusion, which is something which I know you and I share a great passion for and for seeing it being furthered. And I mentioned at the beginning that uh, this podcast is part of a special series that we're doing to mark South Asian Heritage Month. And, you know, you're one of the real trailblazers for the for the South Asian background people. And there's no doubt that arbitrators need to be more diverse. There's no doubt about that. And I agree with you. Uh, But are there any other ways in which we both at the bar and at the solicitor's profession and in the law generally, what more can we do collectively to ensure that we are making our profession truly more diverse, more equal and more inclusive? That's a difficult one, isn't it? Because everyone seems to be aware of the issue, but the the problems of diversity are still there, it seems to me, as in the fact that if one looks at the uptake in undergraduate degrees in law, for example, and the diversity there and how many then get into the jobs in law firms and at the bar and so on, I would, I, I would imagine that it's not proportional it's not reflective of the true diversity in terms of just numbers. I'm sure, I, I can't believe that is the case. I'd be, I'd be surprised if it is. So the question is, uh, is it about the selection process or is it about people not feeling sufficiently comfortable that they've, they've got a shot? Or is it a bit of both? But it seems to me it's got to be a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And obviously, I think that when I started off and probably I'm going to be panned for this, but when I started off, I think that it was very, very, very difficult to get into a top chambers if you weren't from Oxbridge. That was almost a requirement, is my feeling. And that in Mm -hmm. itself then creates an issue of diversity by definition. Yeah, I agree. So I think that's changing and has changed, but it's a question of how you assess someone's ability, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, Ricky, I can remember when I was doing my training contract, which I I did from 1991 to 1993. And I remember I was one of literally only a few people in my intake. And I, you know, I trained at a major city firm. I was very fortunate to do that. And most of them were from Oxbridge. I mean, one of the things that I look at now is in terms of my side of the profession, is that it is a lot more diverse. Long gone are the days when there was a real sort of domination of Oxbridge candidates. And I'm, I'm so happy to see that because there is a much broader spread of people. And we're getting talent from all quarters, which is how it should be. I know traditionally the bar has always been a bit more, I guess, Oxbridge-leaning, And, you know, but I think it is changing. There are many people who come from different backgrounds who are doing very well at the bar who aren't necessarily from those who haven't been to those universities. 
But it's about giving people hope, isn't it, Ricky? I mean, I, I think there's no doubt, and and I'm not just saying this to embarrass you, but people like you give a lot of people hope because when there are aspiring barristers coming through the system and they see your name on the plaque at Essex Court Chambers or 24 Lincoln's Inn, um, I, <laughs> they're synonymous, aren't they? It gives people hope. And then when they see people like Lord Justice Singh on the bench, Mr. Justice Saini, Mr. Justice Chowdhury on the bench, and there'll be more to follow. But when they see these sorts of names, it gives people hope. And I'm sure you'd agree with that. I mean, you have to see role models and examples in front of you. Uh, Absolutely. And Lord Justice Singh, Mr. Justice Saini, for them to be at the higher echelons of the judiciary is... Is, is a big deal, is a big deal. That That's an incredibly positive thing. Well, it is, and hopefully soon it'll be Lord Singh before too long. And, well, and uh, you know, something else. <laughs> I, I mean, that really would be an absolute game changer. That would be a landmark. It so, would be, you know, and, and I still remember just before we go into the final segment, just a sort of personal reminiscing. I, I remember as a very young associate many years ago, I worked with Akluk Chowdhury, who is, who is now Mr. Justice Chowdhury. And I always thought he'd do really well. You know, you get a feeling about someone. He's now in charge of the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And uh, and, and he's just, a you know, again, you know, it's just wonderful to see people like that do well, who I knew once upon a time was very junior junior. So it's, uh, it's really good. Now, let me share one before we move on. Of course. A very small story about... Lord Justice Singh. I've never met Lord Justice Singh. and I I don't know him personally at all. But when I was at university, one professor who was a very, very close friend and mentor for me, Tony Weir, Lord Justice Singh preceded me by I don't know how many years at Trinity. But Tony used to tell me that the one person who used to keep him awake at night time, trying to give answers to all of his incredibly annoyingly complex and difficult questions was Lord Justice Singh. Uh, that, that's a great story. That's a great story. I'm not surprised because I mean, I've been you know, fortunate to have known Lord Justice Singh for a few years now. And when he was at Chambers, and yeah, he's an incredibly nice, humble man, but incredibly clever. And so I'm not surprised that uh, Tony Weir was troubled by the questions that were being put to him. Now, you know, Ricky, it's, it's been a real delight to talk to you and, I, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussions and, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will too. And one of the things our listeners, I know, really enjoy is the final bit that I always ask our podcast guests, which is a bit more lighthearted conversation. And I know this from feedback. They love these sorts of questions. So tell us, Ricky, do you have any favourite singers, bands or sorts of music? This is going to sound terrible, but... I really like. I'm play. sure it won't. <laughs> I really like Coldplay. Oh, fantastic! There's nothing wrong with that. But to be honest, my my uh, music tastes are eclectic because I lived in New York uh, at a time when jazz was extremely popular and was there was a lot of live bands or in, in these tiny digs downtown. I used to go to those because I loved it, and I still like to listen to a lot of jazz. I, being from an Indian background, you can't you can't ignore Bollywood music and uh, but even the classical yeah, music from, yeah. from the Lata Magneshkas and so on. Yeah. So that that's built in because I was listening mm. to it as a kid. Yeah. And then of course modern music I listen to a lot. Of, so it's pretty eclectic to be honest. Yeah. 
you know, I'm exactly the same. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, I'm sure you'll have had the same experience as me really growing up, but I mean, I still have incredibly fond memories of my late parents playing lots of classical Indian music, be it Bengali or Hindi music at home. And, you know, when I was younger, I sort of thought, you know, I just got used to it. And then, you know, how you think sometimes you just reminisce about those days and just long for those days again. So I could identify completely with you on that. And then what about films? Is there a sort of a film or are there films that you that you particularly enjoy and that you like to come back to now and again? Okay, the one I like to come back to, because it reminds me so much of my background and kind of the philosophy of an Indian background is the three idiots. Oh, <laughs> I know. I know the film. <laughs> because some of the things which happened there and some of the things that the parents were talking about just, uh, I, you know, not in a negative way at all, but just entertain me and give me a warm feeling. But that's only, you know, only fellow Indians would understand that reference. But in terms of more world films uh, i still love the godfather classic yeah the classic yeah yeah no no it's a classic <laughs> isn't it i mean it's it's one of those films i think very few people would not have that in their sort of top 10 it's a classic and then uh, the last thing is this ricky i mean you're very international in terms of your practice and your outlook and your background um, and you've travelled a lot, I know, but are there any particular places that you particularly have enjoyed travelling to and you look forward to visiting again sometime soon? So my the best places I've ever been to are where there's wildlife. I, I read a lot about wildlife. I love wildlife. I like being in those settings. So, for example, I went to Kanha National Park back in the 90s when it was an undiscovered tiger tiger park, truly a tiger mm. park. I mean, now mm. it's obviously, it's a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. There were tigers running wild. I remember seeing a tiger having stripped a wild boar. Wow. Uh, half and half asleep. He was half asleep. I was with a tracker just watching. It was a complete delight. And I've had similar experiences in other national parks in India. And also I spent a lot of time in Africa traveling into Botswana, the Okavango mm-hmm. Delta, in Namibia. Uh, Tanzania mm. because when, when you see a wildlife in the wild it's a totally different different thing and to watch them in in nature and being natural I find it amazing so I, I enjoy that a lot it's incredible and I've been very fortunate enough to to have done a little bit of that and it really is humbling to see these wild animals living their natural lives as they do and and just doing all those things it is very very special Ricky, thank you very much for being such a wonderful guest. It's been a real privilege to speak to you. Thank you very much for all that you do in your practice and in being you to really put a spotlight on South Asian heritage people. You are someone I hugely admire and I like very much, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. That's why I'm particularly delighted that we've done this podcast together. So thank you very much. And I know you've done this podcast on the morning before you, you're in court. So I'm even more grateful that you took time out to do this with me, Ricky, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you, Gautam, as you know. So I hope we <laughs> catch you. up soon. Look forward to it, Ricky. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. 
For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.